So my name is Lee Brasington, and today we're going to talk about right views and wrong views. I'll start with a quote from my all-time favorite New York Yankee, Yogi Berra. If you don't know where you're going, you might wind up someplace else, which I think really is an important thing to keep in mind on the spiritual path. There's a lot of practices that are available, especially here in the West, given the huge number of spiritual traditions that are available. But to what end? Okay, so the Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, the end of dukkha. All right? So this is the end of the path that the Buddha was teaching. However, just knowing that part is probably not enough, and what we need is basically a view of how the path is supposed to lead us. And this is what right view is about. Right view is the first thing on the Eightfold Path. And... If I were to discuss all of the suttas that I know of that talk about right view, uh, for sure the MTA would be shut down before we got out of here. It's a huge number. But what I want to do today is take a look at some of the suttas. Now, to start off with, it's actually kind of interesting that right view shows up as the first thing on the Eightfold Path. From a historical perspective, the Sutta Nipata, the Sutta collection, in the Kudaka Nikaya, the fifth of the collections of the discourses, contains many of the suttas that appear to be very old. Now, old has really two things. One, they're old in the sense that they reach their final form quite a long time ago. The Buddha's teachings were kept as an oral tradition. And in an oral tradition, things tend to take on a standard form. So the Buddha might have given a teaching, and he gave another teaching that was somewhat similar. But since it's an oral tradition, they tend to converge into using the same words and so forth. The suttas found in the Sutta Nipata, for the most part, appear to be stuff that reached their final form quite early. Whereas the suttas, say, found in the long discourses, the Diganikaya, appear to be suttas that reached their final form a good bit later. Not to say that the material in the Diganikaya isn't authentic what the Buddha was teaching. It's that he gave a teaching and then bits and pieces were added and bits and pieces were changed. Wherever he talked about the jhanas, for example, the jhana formula got plugged in. No matter what he said there, it all became the same thing. But as I say, the Sutta Nipata appears to be early material in that it reached its final form early on. But there are also suttas in there which the scholars say probably came from very early in the Buddha's teaching career. 
In particular, the last two books of the Sutta Nipata. The Sutta Nipata is about 80 suttas. And books four and five appear to be from very early in his teaching career, particularly book four. Book four is called the Athaka Vaga. The Vaga means chapter. So the, the chapter of the eights. And it's 16, you could say, uh, poems. <laughs> I mean, they're verses. Uh, but 16 discourses. <clears throat> and the first one has, I believe, five verses. And then the next several have eight verses. So this is where the the Bhaga gets its name. But perhaps the overriding theme of the Athika Bhaga is not holding fixed views. If you're going to practice a spiritual path, it's necessary to leave where you are now to get to someplace different. Right? And if you're holding on very tightly to any ideas, that's going to prevent you from going someplace different. Right? Probably the most important thing to bring on the spiritual path is an open mind. And the Buddha talks about this quite frequently in the Athakavaga. I'm going to read you a portion of one of the suttas. This, I believe, is... Which one? I believe number... Number 14. I should have looked. I can tell you at the end. And I'll just read you the ending point, although most of the sutta is about not holding two fixed views. You're familiar with that phrase? If you're familiar with the Metta Sutta, it ends with, by not holding two fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. That's also from the Sutta Nipata, not holding two fixed views. So, a person entrenched in his teachings, honoring a preconceived view, isn't easy to discipline. Whatever he depends on, he describes it as lovely and says that's purity, that there he saw the truth. The Brahman, and the word Brahman is used here as the accomplished spiritual seeker. The Brahma evaluating isn't involved with conjuring doesn't follow views, isn't tied even to knowledge. And now knowing what's conventional, commonplace, he remains equanimous. That's what others hold on to. <clears throat> Having released the knots that tie him down, the sage here in the world doesn't follow a faction when disputes have arisen. At peace among those not at peace, he's equanimous, doesn't hold on to that's what others hold on to. Giving up fermentations, corruptions, taints, unskillful habits of mind, shall we say. Giving up old fermentations, not forming new, neither pursuing desire nor entrenched in his teachings, he's totally released from viewpoints, enlightened. He doesn't adhere to the world is without self-rebuke, is enemy-free with regard to all things, seen, heard, or sensed. 
his burden laid down, the, so, the sage totally released, is free from conjuring, isn't impassioned, doesn't desire. This is what the Blessed One said. So that was uh, Sutta Nipata, Book 4, Number 13. All right, so there's an emphasis on not getting caught up in views. <clears throat> so I think the first thing we need to, to know about right view is that it means keeping an open mind. It, key, it means keeping remembering that if you're not enlightened at the moment, that is, you're still experiencing dukkha, you're going to have to make changes to your understanding of reality. If your understanding of reality was correct, then you wouldn't be experiencing dukkha. This is the Buddha's promise. Right? If you understand how reality works, then you don't make the stupid mistakes of craving and clinging. But because you don't quite understand that, in other words, because your view isn't perfected at this point, you see some things as worth craving, and when you get hold of them, clinging to them. And this is producing the dukkha. So, <clears throat> if you want to get someplace other than where you are now, you have to leave where you are now. And this is the first aspect of right view. Now, there are quite a number of places, however, where the Buddha talks about right view and gives a more positive definition other than not holding to fixed views. If we go to the greater discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, which probably serves as the basis of the Western Vipassana tradition, we find in that sutta, in the last of the four foundations, the foundation on phenomena, there are five of the Buddha's teachings that are presented, and the fifth one is the Four Noble Truths. And of course, the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, and in there, we have a description of each of the elements of the Eightfold Path, including right view. And what, O oh monks, is right view? It is the knowledge of dukkha, the knowledge of the origin of dukkha, the knowledge of the cessation of dukkha, and the knowledge of the way of practice leading to the cessation of dukkha. This is right view. So here the Buddha defines right view as understanding the Four Noble Truths. All right, so understanding that if you incarnate as a human being, dukkha happens. They used to put that on bumper stickers, right? <laughs> of course, they used a four-letter Anglo-Saxon word rather than a poly word, but it's the same thing, right? <clears throat> and then the cause of dukkha. Often you hear dukkha is caused by craving. Actually, the Buddha had a much more brilliant thing to say than that. He said, dukkha arises dependent on craving. That I think he was probably the first person ever to really understand about necessary conditions. A necessary condition for the lights to be on is the switch be turned, right? But that's not a sufficient condition. If Sandy comes ashore and knocks out the power plant, it doesn't matter what you do to the switch. 
You're not going to get any light. <clears throat> but it's a necessary condition. And if you want the light to go out, you can turn off the switch. You don't have to go blow up the power plant. Right? So if you can find a necessary condition for something to happen and prevent the necessary condition from happening, you prevent the downstream thing from happening. This is what the Buddha understood with the second of the Four Noble Truths, that dukkha arises with craving as a necessary condition. And then the third Noble Truth is turn off the craving and there's no dukkha. Right? If you prevent the craving, then the dukkha has no necessary condition upon which it can arise and you don't experience dukkha. And then, of course, I tell you, don't crave. You're probably not able to pull that off. In fact, if the Buddha himself were sitting here and told you don't crave, you probably would still go out of here and crave. So what is necessary is to learn to stop craving. And there is a path by which you can learn to stop craving, the Noble Eightfold Path. And the first thing on the Noble Eightfold Path is right view, which means understanding the Four Noble Truths. <clears throat> the Buddha's teaching is holographic. If you take any aspect of it and start digging deeply down into it, you find the whole of the teaching there. And this is an example of it right here, where you look at the Four Noble Truths, and you find the Eightfold Path, and you find the first thing is right view, and you're right back to the Four Noble Truths. This description of the Four Noble Truths and the details of the Eightfold Path are found in a number of suttas. This is from the Long Discourses, number 22, as I said, the Great Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. You can find it in the Middle Length Discourses in number 141. You can find it in the Connected Discourses in several places. In the, the Connected Discourses are it could really be called the thematic discourses. And one of the themes is the Eightfold Path. And the detailed description of the Eightfold Path, of course, occurs in there. So multiple times the Buddha described right view as knowledge of each of the elements of the Four Noble Truths. But <clears throat> that wasn't the only way that it gets described. Um... There's a sutta in the middle length discourses. Uh, oops. In the middle length discourses, which is the ninth sutta there, and it's entitled the Samaditi Sutta, the Sutta on Right View. And I'll just share with you some of what it says. Um, probably this sutta is a later composition. In other words, probably didn't actually happen while the Buddha was alive. Um, there's enough hints in here that it's something that was composed later by drawing together pieces from other teachings. Uh, in fact, I would say most, no, not most, many of the suttas in the middle length and long discourses are made by drawing together pieces from other teachings. Just because the way in which we have these teachings preserved 
didn't arise directly from the Buddha or one of his disciples doesn't mean it's invalid. It just means that it's an early composition of material that probably is valid, made up, the composition is made up by drawing on material that is valid. And so this seems to be the case with this Sutta on Right View. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. Now, Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park was where the Buddha spent 25 rains retreats. In the time of the Buddha, the monks would, during the rainy season, stay in the monastery and go on retreat. Not necessarily because they needed a three-month retreat, but because if they went out wandering around, they might step on the newly planted rice plants, which were underwater at that time because of the rain. And this would cause a famine if they trampled all the rice plants. So they stayed home, and the lay supporters brought them food. Then the Venerable Sariputta, who was the Buddha's chief disciple, the right-hand disciple, addressed the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, friend, they replied, and the Venerable Sariputta said this, One of right view, one of right view, it is said, friends. In what way is a noble disciple one of right view, whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dhamma, and has arrived at this true Dhamma? And the bhikkhus are like, it would be great if you could tell us. Then listen and attend closely. When friends, a noble disciple understands the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, in that way one is of right view, one, who, one, who, one whose view is straight, who has unwavering confidence in the Dhamma and has arrived at this true Dhamma. And what friends is the unwholesome? Breaking the precepts. Okay, it's enumerated in detail here. <clears throat> And what is the root of the unwholesome? Greed, hatred, and delusion. And what is the wholesome? Keeping the precepts. And what is the root of the wholesome? Non-greed, which would be generosity, renunciation. Non-hatred, which would be love, compassion, and non-delusion which would be wisdom. When one understands the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, one entirely abandons the underlying tendency to lust. One abandons the underlying tendency to aversion. One uproots the underlying tendency to the view and conceit I am. Okay, this is the basic wrong view. I am. Basically, Descartes blew it. Right? He said, I think, therefore I am. Actually, what he should have said was, I think, therefore I think I think. All right? Or even more accurately, thinking is happening, therefore thinking is happening. But his implication was that, that there was a thinker there. And the Buddha is saying this is a misunderstanding of what's going on. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, 
one here and now makes an end to dukkha. In that way, one is a noble disciple of right view, whose view is straight, has unwavering confidence, has arrived at the true Dhamma. So that's the first one. The second one is nutriment. The bhikkhus said, but Sariputta, could there be another way in which right view could be understood? When friends, a noble disciple understands nutriment, the origin of nutriment, the cessation of nutriment, and the way leading to the cessation of nutriment, in that way one is one of right view. Now this pattern of something, the origin of something, the cessation of something, and the pattern leading to the cessation of something, obviously is based on the Four Noble Truths. You find it here for nutriment, you find it at times for the asavas, the intoxicants, the intoxicants of sense desire, of becoming, and of ignorance. And you find it for a number of other things. So this pattern that the Buddha used for the Four Noble Truths gets applied to a number of other things. And what is nutriment, its origin, cessation, and the way leading to the cessation? There are four kinds of nutriment for the maintenance of beings that have already come to be and for the support of those who will come to be. What for? They are physical food, contact, mental volition, and consciousness. So the nutriment, the things that feed us are food, okay, that maintains the body, and then contact, sense contacts, the things that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, uh, mental volition, our wanting to do things. Remember in discussing karma, the Buddha said, karma I declare, O monks, is intention or mental volition. So we are fed by our actions and the food for our actions is our intentions, our mental volition. So that's what's meant here. And then consciousness. With the arising of craving, there's the arising of nutriment. So you're familiar with the craving for food and all the other things you need to maintain your physical well-being. Uh, there's the craving for sensory input. You come home, right? You take care of business, and now sensory input. And you start punching buttons until you get enough sensory input to entertain you. Maybe it's your computer, maybe it's your smartphone, maybe it's your television, right? But you're looking for that sensory input because you have the craving for that sensory input. Uh, <clears throat> the craving for volition, you want things to go the way you want them to be. You act in certain ways and so forth. And craving for consciousness. You don't want to go to bed just yet. You want to stay up and have some more entertainment, all right? Uh, with the cessation of craving, there's the cessation of nutriment. Although that's literally what it says, there's the cessation of feeling dependent on the nutriment that you've got to have something on the TV or something on the internet or something on somebody on your phone or whatever, right? Uh, and, of course, the way to get there is practicing the Eightfold Path. And again, when one understands this, then this is right view. 
Next comes the Four Noble Truths, which is described in the same way that it's described in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta as what is dukkha and what is craving and so forth. And then, very interestingly, it starts, the next form of right view is to understand aging and death. Um, And again, it's put into the same pattern. Uh, I won't repeat this pattern of understanding it, its origin, its cessation, etc. Other than to say that its origin is birth. Right? Aging and death is dependent on birth. If you don't get born, you don't get old and die. Right? So being born is a necessary condition for getting old and dying. And then the next possible right view is of birth. Okay? Those of you familiar with dependent origination, you want to guess what comes next? Becoming. Right, and this sutta goes all the way through, listing each of the things in the so-called reverse order. So aging and death is dependent on birth. Birth is dependent on becoming. Becoming is dependent upon uh, clinging. Clinging is dependent on craving. Craving is dependent on vedna. We crave the things that produce pleasant vedna. We crave for the absence of things that produce unpleasant vedna. The Vedna, the initial categorization of a sensory input, is dependent on there being sensory input, contact. Contact is dependent upon the senses. The senses are dependent upon having a mind and body. Mind and body is dependent upon being conscious. Consciousness is dependent upon an object, a sankara. You can't be conscious and not be conscious of something. Right? And the sankharas are dependent upon ignorance. Ignoring the true nature of reality. This is a table, right? I think we would all agree it's a table. But if you really look closely, it's actually some trees. They got chopped down. They got made into this form. They got assembled like this. And because we're human beings and we use it for things like glasses, cases, and water, we call it a table. If you're a leprechaun, it's a bus shelter, right? It's conventionally a table. We have come to understand that this is conventionally called a table. Of course, this is there as a flood, This might be your life preserver. Or if you don't have any heat, but you have a fireplace, it might become firewood. And eventually, of course, it probably will become firewood. It'll break, and somebody will burn it, and the carbon dioxide will go back into the atmosphere and breathe in by some trees. It appears Mother Nature is running a big recycling project. We're just part of what gets recycled. This is all part of right view the understanding of the solidity of the objects that we take for granted is not really, they're not really as solid as we think. We ignore their dependently originated nature and the fact that so many things are dependent on so many other things. Uh, 
<clears throat> this is what the ignorance is. So the sankharas of the world, the objects, we arise because we ignore their dependently originated nature. So all of this is included in right view. So basically the Buddha is saying that in a positive way, right view means not holding to fixed views. It means the Four Noble Truths, which includes the Eightfold Path, which, remember, is not a metaphysical explanation of how the world exists. It's an orientation to help you deal with the basic problem of dukkha. And then at perhaps a more complex level, right view is the Four Noble Truths, uh, is, the, is dependent origination. Looking at the world and seeing, in a general sense, that everything that exists depends on other things. Nothing exists independently. And as we'll see as the day goes on, this is the deepest form of right view. So I'm going to stop at this point and see if there are any questions. And then after that, we'll take a look at some wrong views. Mm -hmm. The construct of an entity that has some degree of autonomy and hopefully permanence. That's the wrong view. Yes. Okay. So, so, but in order to live in society, how do you get along without an ego? You don't get along without an ego. You get along with not being deluded about the fact that your ego is a convention that's useful for getting along in society and isn't the be-all and end-all in the universe. There are two levels of truth, okay? It's not talked about so much in the suttas, although you find hints of it at times in the suttas. But usually it's referred to as the relative truth and the absolute truth. On the relative level, this is my glasses, right? It's not yours, and they're going with me when I leave here, okay? On the absolute level, this is some metal and some glass that this mind-body process has hold of at the moment and is intending to keep hold of, all right? Nargajuna, who we'll talk about a bit later, who lived probably in the second century AD, so 500 years after the Buddha's death, talks about truths that don't fully reveal and truths that are sublime. We call them relative and absolute. But the relative truth is indeed the truth, but it doesn't fully reveal what's going on. The absolute truth needs to be understood in order to find the freedom. So the f limitations of the relative truth are such that we can't find the liberation. But you can't abandon the relative truth. When you go to cross the street, you can't look down the street and see a bus coming and say, it's empty and step in front of it, right? It's going to squash you. You have to operate in the relative world with the relative truths in the sense that 
this is me and this is mine and I had to get up this morning and take a shower and get some breakfast and get myself over here and make sure I had set up my Kindle with my copies of the suttas and so forth. So from the relative viewpoint. But if I operate only from the relative viewpoint, it's going to be a problem. Operating only from the relative viewpoint is the ultimate in delusion. Exactly. Because it turns out that all of this is just conventional. That what's really going on is a whole host of things coming together to make me who I am. Yeah, it most assuredly is. The Buddha, if he were to come to 21st century Western culture, would be absolutely astounded at how, how wrong our view of self is. Yeah, there is no doubt about it. Uh, and yet, we're in this culture. We're embedded in it. We've been in it for decades, and we're operating from this viewpoint. Right. And so what we need to do is start getting the bigger picture. Start understanding that we're dependent on things. Uh, I mean, we're talking about we might have to end this early because they're going to be shutting down the transportation. We're dependent on the weather in the Atlantic, right? Because the transportation that we're dependent upon is dependent upon the subway system not being flooded, et cetera, et cetera, right? And furthermore, the electricity that we depend on, right, is dependent upon the power lines being up. And the food that we eat, uh, we're not growing it in our apartments, right? That's dependent on the trucks bringing it in. And you start looking at all the things that a Westerner living in a metropolitan area is dependent upon. They're just, they're the tip of a lot of streams of things coming together. The fa my favorite image that comes up, <clears throat> sometimes fire departments will get together, fire companies will get together and like have a contest, you know, who can, you know, lay out the hoses the fastest and who can, you know, shoot the water the furthest. And one of the things is they'll get a bunch of firemen with hoses around a large ball, you know, a big ball, and they'll shoot the water at the ball and try and raise it up. All right, until the ball is up in the air with you know six streams of water coming at it, and the contest, of course, is two teams and who can get it the highest, the fastest. This is what we are. We're that ball up in the air, and we're supported by all these streams coming at us. The ball up in the air. We think of it as oh, there's a ball up in the air. But it's, it's an, a whole system that's happening, right? It's the water that's coming out of those hoses. It's the trucks that are pumping the water because they've got these diesel engines turning really fast. 
which of course is dependent upon having gotten the fossil fuels in there, which of course is dependent upon that many years ago there was a bunch of plant material that fell over and got buried and got pressure. And I mean, <clears throat> that ball is up in the air dependent on so many things, right? The ones we can see are the streams of water. If we look at ourselves, we're dependent on the air. And I don't just mean to breathe to get the oxygen. There's 14 and a half pounds per square inch of air pressure on you. If that were to disappear, you'd be dead very painfully in under a minute because all of the dissolved gases in your bloodstream would suddenly boil and you would disappear. We think of ourselves as ending right here, right? It's not the case. You, you are very much dependent on the air pressure. <clears throat> so. Right. We're destroying what we depend upon. Exactly. So not understanding that is fatal. Exactly. We don't understand that we're not independent entities. We don't understand that we're dependent upon so much else around us. All the people, the electricity, the food supply, the water supply, etc. Right. The weather operating in a relative benign way. And because we're putting out so many greenhouse gases, we're messing up the weather, and here comes Sandy to mess up your weekend. Can I add to that that this self here that looks like a cell is actually, there's only one trillion cells of our own here. Now scientists are discovering that there's 400 trillion bacteria that is totally working together with our own cells and other bacteria and and other organisms. So, this delusion of the self is totally broken down even by science, saying that we are an ecosystem, this little microsystem, micro, so that the whole ecology that's broken, it's, it's ambient, it's not state, but it's yeah. not what it seems to be. So when Buddha said, look at that attractiveness of the body, that's the truth. Because mm -hmm. if I look at the beauty and I look at the skin out of the skin, it's mostly bacteria and Right, exactly. And if you look at every surface, I mean, you know, the mouth, which tooth has its own calling bacteria, the filthiest feel part of the body, and people kiss. Okay, just outside is out. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I'd also like to kind of, how do you sort of join the genres into this? kind of from work of yesterday to today because in a way it helps us to really become a kind of away from that and find the pleasure that is not sensual, external, but finding this harmless and I think I like to more kind of link it to what we did yesterday right. to today. I don't know if you yeah, know Right. Yesterday I talked about the jhanas which are concentration states and Concentration is very helpful for seeing things as they are. With your concentrated mind, you've gotten your normal ego functioning much quieter. And then if you take a look at reality, you can see it from a less egocentric perspective. 
And you start seeing, oh, this mind-body process isn't a single entity. It's, yeah, the majority of the cells here aren't even mine. <clears throat> and furthermore, it's dependent on so many other things. Uh, the way Nagarjuna put it was, you are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither forever severed from them nor fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. <laughs> you are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither forever fused with them nor severed from them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. And this, Nagarjuna, in the Mulamayamaka Karika, chapter 18, the fundamental verses on the middle way. Uh, Stephen Batchelor has a very readable translation, and Jay Garfield has a more accurate translation with a commentary. I'll talk about it some more towards the end of the day. By a entity defying it, by making I entities. No, I wouldn't say what exists is pure mind. No, there's definitely matter out there as well. And in fact, I would say mind arises dependent on matter. In fact, that's what the Buddha says. One investigates this body and one investigates this consciousness which is dependent upon it and bound up with it. Okay, so that essentially mind is an arising out of the activity of the physical process. If you want a book on that, uh, Gerald Edelman... A universe of consciousness. It's not an easy read, but it's brilliant. You know, it was like pushing my brain really hard to read the book, but it was just brilliant. And he basically is explaining how mind, to the best of neuroscience's understanding now, arises. Uh, a universe of consciousness. The title is not really descriptive, but Gerald Edelman. It's on the reading list on my website. Uh, someone in the back? No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This seems to be the case that <clears throat> there's a sutta about the death of Anatapindika. 
Anatapindika was the one who gave Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park, to the Buddha to be a monastery. He was a very rich merchant in Savati. And at the time of his death, Sariputta and Ananda come to see him, and they give him a fairly advanced teaching on the aggregates. And at the end of the teaching, uh, Anatapindika starts crying. And they ask him, are, are your pains getting worse? Are you floundering? And he says, no, no, I've never heard teaching like this before. And it, it's, it's touched me deeply. And Sariputta says, we, we don't give these kind of teachings to lay people. And Anatapindika says, you've got to give these teachings to lay people. This is so important. So apparently, there was more of a restricted set of teachings given to lay people and more advanced teachings given to the monks. But if you look carefully, it's more that there were beginning sets of teachings. All right. So from the beginning, you have a self. And don't let yourself go out and kill people or steal things or do sexual misconduct or tell lies or take intoxicants. Right? And love yourself and love all the other selves. Right? So that's the first level. And then at the second level, well, you don't really have a self. Right? And then at the third level, well, you do have a self and you don't have a self. And then at the fourth level, well, actually you don't even have a self or not have a self. Right? So the Buddha's teachings kept getting more and more refined depending on the depth of who he was speaking to. And if you read a lot of suttas, this is what you find. You find teachings that are for beginners and teachings that are for those who've gotten beyond the beginning stage but not really to the advanced stage and then deeper and deeper and deeper into the teachings. So uh, I would say that Probably, since most of you are probably fairly dedicated to the path and have spent some time at it, otherwise you wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning, you can, you can handle the more advanced stuff. So the fact that you're lay people, I think, is not important. It's important to gain an understanding of what the Buddha is talking about on all levels. And so when you're operating from the relative viewpoint and you encounter someone, you encounter them heart to heart, that is with metta and compassion, which is a self-to-self -self thing. And you also are aware that, yeah, the sense of self here is just a conventional construct, that there actually isn't an entity in here. Because as long as you think there's an entity, then this entity is going to have mine. Right? And the craving and clinging has produced some dukkha. challenge for us is navigating skillfully between those two, between self and non-self. Between knowing when it's appropriate to act in a conventional way from the perspective of myself and yourself and knowing when it's appropriate to act in the more absolute way of there's just streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. And can you give an example of that? Uh, it may be quite helpful to stop the craving when you realize that you can't own anything anyhow. Um, <clears throat> let's say you go to the beach and you take a little kid with you and you build a great sandcastle 
you know, really, really big one, turret, smoke, the whole works. And then, of course, a big wave comes along and wipes it out. The little kid gets terribly upset and starts screaming and crying. Do you get upset? No. You understand the nature of sandcastles. I got news for you folks. It's all sandcastles. All right? So the seeing at that level that it's all sandcastles. So a big wave comes along and wipes out your sandcastle. I mean, I don't know. A thief comes in and steals your 38-inch TV. Right? Okay. You recognize it's just sandcastles. Okay, and, the, and so you're not as freaked out. Can you clarify this? Because uh, I think because of, I guess, uh, such a long history of Buddhism and so many different schools and thinking that um, we hear a lot about what it means to purely in the mind. And apparently I was introduced in my high school. Mm-hmm. And Buddha never said anything about the image. Correct. Because that would create a lot of conflicts. If I'm so pure in this, what do I need to do with the else? Right? It's kind of, if it's in there, then so, I, can you just uh, elaborate on that? Because I just feel like that's kind of confusing to us, kind of saying there's a potential of Buddha, but that must be work, and you have to develop skillful and skillful skills. It's part of this other path. And, but it seems like that whole idea of, like, as you just later, that we have this pure mind, or Buddha, which is kind of um, not sure yeah. idea. Because Buddha never taught that. Right. Yeah, the Buddha nature concept comes from the Mahayana tradition. Uh, the Buddha never spoke of anything that you would really want to say, well, this is the precursor to Buddha nature. I mean, you just don't find that. He's basically saying... <laughs> You've got to pay attention to what you're doing. You've got to act in ways that don't cause harm to other beings. And he's recognizing that we have this tendency to act in ways that do cause harm. So, yeah, the Buddha nature concept as the potential to awaken is a useful concept. But the Buddha nature concept as some sort of innate anything in there there doesn't seem to be a basis for that so I take the teachings on Buddha nature is just like okay everybody's got the potential to wake up and just leave it at that 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 part seems to be okay yeah I want to go back though to to your question because I don't think I fully answered it how did how did the mind start start missing the, the fact that there's all these streams because our minds are unable to take in the incredibly complex data necessary to see all the streams that are coming. Uh, The mind is basically looking for, can I eat that or will that eat me? It's it's really looking for, is this something that I need to obtain in order to survive, the bit on nutriment here, right? Or is this something I need to push away or run away from or fight or whatever, okay? And so the chunking of things into microphone and bell and Kindle and eyeglasses, 
and ignoring all the stuff that came together to make them is a shortcut for our little pea brains to deal with the world. No, the self apparently develops in the, I'm going to say, about three months in. When a child is born, it doesn't distinguish between itself and its mother. We don't really understand when the concept of self arose in humans. Um, in fact, we're still struggling to understand how much concept of self animals have. Uh, the, the greater apes can recognize themselves in a mirror and, and things like that. They can recognize their own calls. Uh, apparently, dolphins and whales have that capacity. But crows have that capacity. Okay? So do crows have a sense of self? Well, they, they can recognize their call versus someone else's call. Okay? And they apparently can recognize themselves in a mirror. But your dog or your cat can't recognize itself in a mirror. It doesn't know that's it. Okay? So when did it show up? You know, was it before the split from chimpanzees? Or was it... You know, after that, and the chimpanzees got a little bit, I'm guessing it was probably a bit before, but it was a very rudimentary thing. You can see it's a useful survival tool in the sense that I need to protect this mind-body process that I'm going to give the name me. All right, and you can see where it would arise. There's enough complexity up here to recognize me as separate from my environment and the need to protect it. Uh, but there's not enough complexity up there to recognize, oh, but actually this is just the conditions on which it depends manifesting and the, the deeper implications of that. I was just going to say that, I mean, the, the way you're going with this, I mean, clearly the, the roots of this go way, way, way back. I mean, territorialism is almost universal and it's a more complex creature. The wisdom, the wish to grab things for mine, this is my territory, this is my whatever right. rock. And obviously, anger towards things that they don't like. Um, obviously, anger, anger behavior, and so on. To, and it's not that those things are necessarily going in the wrong direction, although I do question the current culture, <laughs> but that we're trying to see the deeper levels of what's going on and manage to operate successfully in the environment in which we find ourselves. Um, you know, the way to operate in New York City is, okay, you, you need to just... I've got to have my own card to get through that gate, to get on that subway, to get off at that location. To I mean, this stuff has to be understood. But <clears throat> to get free from dukkha, understanding I have to have my own card to get on the subway is probably not useful. Okay? 
Um, it's more about seeing the bigger picture and that we're all dependent on a bunch of other stuff. think it's very important because what we have is the Buddha talking to people, right? And he speaks differently to different people. If he's talking to a Jain, he's going to use a very different language than if he's talking to a Brahmin or an Ajivaka or a king or a physician or a warrior, right? So it's very important to understand to whom the Buddha is speaking and what their background is, because the Buddha apparently was highly educated and knew a lot about the various other religious traditions of his time and was taking metaphors, metaphors from their tradition and tweaking them slightly. This was his favorite thing to do. There's something in some tradition. Uh, dependent origination, for example. If you study the Upanishads, you find the hymn of creation, which has many of the same links as we find in dependent origination. The Buddha took something that someone was familiar with and tweaked it. The, the links would be known to a Brahmin, but the Buddha's giving them different meaning in teaching dependent origination. So, I think if you really want the depth of what's in the suttas, it's very much necessary to understand to whom the Buddha is speaking and what their background is. Remember, the Buddha is never trying to lay out a, a metaphysical explanation of anything. <clears throat> Part of right view is that numerous times people would come to the Buddha and they would ask him these ten questions. Is the world eternal? Or not? Is the world infinite or not? Is the life force the same as the body or not? And what happens to a perfected one after death? Do they exist? 
not exist, both exist and not exist, neither exist nor not exist. And the answer to each one of these questions when they were posed to the Buddha was, the Buddha would reply, I don't teach that. He, he just didn't go there. The, the, in fact, he said, trying to figure out how the world began will either lead to madness or great vexation. <laughs> okay, so he was not going to explain how the world came to be. As to whether the world was infinite or not, what difference does that make? Right? In fact, how the world came to be, what difference does that make? The problem is dukkha. If there was the Big Bang or we're, you know, some simulation in some other computer, it doesn't matter. Your thing is to stop the craving because that's what produces the dukkha. All right? And is the soul the same as the body? All right, now this is the big one. Is the life force the same as the body? Most religions started off as an immortality project, right? Okay, grandma's dead. What do we do about that? Don't worry, she'll be back. With the implication of, don't worry, when you die, you'll be back. Or, she's gone to a better place with the implication of, well, when you die, you'll go to a better place. All right? So the, the immortality project underpins most religions. And the Buddha wouldn't be drawn into discussing that. Is the soul the same as the body or not? And he says, I don't teach about that. All right? He says, there's dukkha. And the dukkha arises dependent on craving. Stop doing the craving and you can stop the dukkha. That's all he was teaching. That's the view he's pointing out. So, when you're reading the suttas, you find him contradicting himself. It looks like he's talking about something here to this person that completely contradicts what he says to some other person. He wasn't trying to build a consistent metaphysics. He was trying to get this person to practice and he used what they understood to explain something to them so they would start practicing, so they'd stop craving and get over the dukkha. He's taking something completely contradictory and telling this person because he hopes they'll stop doing what they're doing, start practicing, and learn to get over the dukkha. So I think it's absolutely essential if you want to study it at the deepest level. Yeah. If you're going to read suttas, and I highly recommend it, I mean, there is, there is a learning curve for learning to read suttas. But if you want to read them, then part of what's necessary is to see to whom they're given. And very often at the beginning of a sutta, it says to whom it's given. Now, you may not know about that person, but luckily, on the internet, there is the... Dictionary of Pali names, and so you can look the person up and find out what we know about them. Now, admittedly, there's a lot of extra commentarial um, elaborations, shall we say, about some of these people, but you can find out if they're a Jain or a Brahmin or you know something about their background. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it's quite fascinating, evidently, according to her, the Buddha was a bit of a renegade because at the time, um, religion was uh, only in the hands of priests. 
to join the fire. Fire was really big. And um, he comes along and we was um, kind of, what was he called? Disruptive. Disruptive. Yes, he was a rebel. Yeah. Guy. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. I mean, again, the the greed, hatred, and delusion the Buddha talked about as not the three poisons—that's a Mahayana mistake—as the three fires. Okay, he he took the three fires of the Brahmins, and he said, "You want to know about the three fires? It's not these you got burning in your house. It's these three you got burning in your mind, in your heart." You need to put them out. You need to make them not burning. Not burning is the word nibbana, right? So nibbana, yeah, nibbana is putting out the three fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not the annihilation of something, right? So, yeah, so it's very important to to understand what's going on, who he's speaking to, and where the similes come from that he's using. So there are actually a large number of suttas on um, oops, let me get myself set here on wrong view. The first sutta in the whole collection, the first sutta in the Diganikaya, is the Brahmajala Sutta the sutta on the net of views. And that net basically is a description of 22 wrong views. Uh, Sorry, of 62 wrong views. They're divided into a number of subcategories. There's the category of eternalism, which is basically the immortality project. I've got a soul and it's like this. And when I die, it's going to come back or it's going to merge with Brahma or it's going to whatever. And then there are the annihilationist views. No soul. You're here now. When you die, you're done. And then the last five are interesting. <clears throat> Number 58 is hedonism. That Nibbana is enjoying sense pleasures. You know, see beautiful sights, eat wonderful food, hear great music, etc. That's Nibbana, here and now. And uh, then it's followed by, no, 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 that's not Nibbana. The first jhana is Nibbana. And that's followed by, no, 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 that's not Nibbana. The second jhana is Nibbana. And the third and the fourth. So that's the last five views. So misunderstanding the jhanic state as Nibbana or just pure raw hedonism, or you're annihilated, or some aspect of you lives forever. And the Buddha says they're all incorrect. The second discourse in the long discourses, which is the one I read from yesterday about the jhanas, early in that discourse, there are descriptions in detail of six wrong views. There apparently were six very well-known teachers who were outside of the orthodoxy. The Brahmins were the orthodoxy, and they were the priests with the fires and all this. But there was a, a large number of 
rebels. The Buddha was only one of quite a, a number of them, and there are these six other teachers. And they have all sorts of views. One of those teachers is Mahavira, the founder of the Jain religion. He was an older contemporary of the Buddha. And Jainism gets described there in, in a way that sort of makes fun of it. Okay? So we would suspect that probably the other descriptions are making fun of those religions as well. But there are all sorts of things. There are those who are amoralist. It doesn't matter what you do. You know, you, you want to kill somebody, no problem. There are people who are strict materialist. Uh, and then the, the last guy is an eel wriggler. And he doesn't believe anything. Whatever you ask him, he says, well, I don't teach it's like that. You know, he never comes up with an answer to anything. And so we see these type of views being presented as well. So these are another six wrong views. But there are three suttas where there's one of the Buddha's monks who has a wrong view. And so what I want to share with you is number 22 in the Middle Length Discourses, which is the sutta on the simile of the snake. Thus have I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jaitis Grove, Anatapindika's Park. Now on that occasion, a pernicious view had arisen in a bhikkhu named Aritha, formerly of the vulture killers. So not quite sure what that means. Possibly it means that he was like a falconer, okay, that he used a falcon to kill other animals. <clears throat> Anyhow, it's apparently a derogatory occupation. And his view was, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, those things called obstructions by the Blessed One are not able to obstruct one who engages in them. Uh, the commentaries say that he felt that it was okay to have sexual relations, that it really wouldn't obstruct you on the path. You could still be a monk, but you could still have sexual relations. The sutta doesn't say exactly what he felt were the obstructions that really didn't obstruct. But the other monks found out about that and asked him, did he believe that? And he said yes. And those monks said, do not say so. Do not misrepresent the Blessed One. It is not good to misrepresent the Blessed One. The Blessed One would not speak thus. For in many ways, the Blessed One has stated how obstructive things are obstructions and how they're able to obstruct one who engages in them. The Blessed One has stated that sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering and despair, and that the danger in them is still more. He's taught this with the simile of the skeleton, the simile of the piece of meat, the simile of the grass torch, the simile of the pit of coals, the simile of the dream, the simile of the borrowed goods, the simile of the fruits on the tree, the simile of the butcher's knife and block, the simile of the sword stake, and the simile of the snake's head. You might get the impression that the Buddha taught frequently about not getting lost in sensual pleasures. And there are lots of these. Most of these suttas, uh, these similes can be found in suttas. Um, the simile of the grass torch. The Buddha says that engaging in sensual pleasures is like taking a, a torch made of grass and walking into the wind. You'll get burned, okay? Not a good idea. Um, as a greed type, 
I uh, find the teachings on avoiding sensual pleasures uh, <clears throat> somewhat difficult to swallow, but nonetheless, uh, this is what the Buddha said. And clearly, if you just pursue sensual pleasures, uh, you'll miss out on some of the deeper aspects of the path. Uh, but although they pressed and questioned and cross-questioned Aritha, he maintained his view. So they went to the Blessed One, told him about the conversation, and the Blessed One said, you, tell Aritha the, the Master calls. And so that monk went to Aritha, and he came and saluted the Buddha, sat down on one side, and the Buddha asked him about his view. And he said that's indeed what he believed, that these obstructions really wouldn't obstruct. Misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man, have I not stated in many ways, etc. How Same thing as the monks told him. Right? But now, when the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhu thus, then the Blessed One addressed the, the other bhikkhus thus, what do you think? Has this bhikkhu Aritha kindled even a spark of wisdom in this Dhamma and discipline? How could he, venerable sir? No, venerable sir. When this was said, the bhikkhu Aritha, formerly of the vulture killer, sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping and head down, glum and without response. Then knowing this, the Blessed One told him, misguided man, you will be recognized by your own pernicious view. I shall question the bhikkhus on this matter. So the Buddha wasn't exactly easy on people that had wrong views. He was pretty harsh until they sat there with their head down, shoulders drooping, and looking glum. Uh, and then he asked the monks, do they understand? And they say, no, you've taught us with all these similes. Uh, bhikkhus, and, and, uh, and then the Buddha says, good bhikkhus, it is good that you understand this. Because Aritha, by his wrong misrepresentation of, it, of us, injures himself and stores up much demerit. For this will lead to this ma misguided man's harm and suffering for a long time. Bhikkhus, that one can engage in sensual pleasures without sensual desires, without perceptions of sensual desires, without thoughts of sensual desires, that is impossible. So this gives us some idea of what the problem is. It's not the sensual pleasures itself, it's the precursors of that, the wanting. And the wanting, that's the craving, and that produces dukkha. <clears throat> and then this sutta goes on and starts describing a number of different topics. This sutta is probably a later composition. One of the hints is the first thing it says here, some misguided man learns the Dhamma. Discourses, stanzas, expositions, verses, exclamations, sayings, birth stories, marvels, and answers to questions. Now, this is a very interesting list of topics for the Dharma. Historically, what appears to have happened is about three months after the Buddha's death, a large number, traditionally 500, arhats came together in a cave outside the city of Rajagaha, and they formulated the Dhamma and the discipline, the Dhamma Vinaya. The Vinaya is the rules for the monks and nuns. And so they formalized what those rules were. 
and then they formalized what were the suttas. This is all still oral. It was an oral tradition for about 400 years. They organized the suttas not into the collections that we have now, of the long, the middle, the connected, the numerical, and the miscellaneous. They organized it into this list that was here. And this sutta, because it mentions that list, was probably composed after that council. Then there was a second council, traditionally a hundred years after the Buddha's death, so a hundred years after the first council, we take a hundred years as a rough approximate, say 75 to a hundred years, and they spent six months at the first council organizing the suttas and seven months at the second council reorganizing the suttas into what we have now of the long, the middle, the connected, the numerical, and the miscellaneous. So this sutta appears to be composed in that period in between. But it's a very instructive sutta, and it appears to be composed of a lot of material that's brought together from other places. This is the last we hear of Aritha and his pernicious view. I'm guessing that's an incident that actually happened during the time of the Buddha, and that sutta had other things added onto it as time went on, including this thing about somebody learning the suttas in this various of these various collections. And then having learned the Dharma, the Buddha says, they do not examine the meaning of those teachings with wisdom. Not examining the meaning of those teachings with wisdom, they do, they do not gain a reflective acceptance of them. Instead, they learn the Dhamma only for the sake of criticizing others and for winning in debates. And they do not experience the good for the sake of which they learn the Dharma. In other words, they become a scholar so they can argue with other people and get, you know, the highest seat at the university. And so this is what's being criticized. Those teachings being wrongly grasped by them conduce to their harm and suffering for a long time. Why is that? Because of the wrong grasp of those teachings. And then the Buddha gives the simile of the snake. If someone needed a snake, and they went out and they found a snake, and they picked the snake up by the tail, that snake would probably wrap itself around that person's arm and then bite them, and this would lead to their death or deadly suffering. <clears throat> and this is what it's like if someone learns the Dharma but doesn't practice it and only argues about it. But if a man needed a snake and he were to get a cleft stick and put the cleft over the head of the snake and then pick up the snake just behind the head, even though that snake wrapped itself around his arm, he would not be hurt and would not come to death or deadly suffering. Therefore, bhikkhus, you should understand the meaning of my statements. Remember it accordingly, and when you do not understand the meaning of my statements, then ask me about it or other bhikkhus who are wise. Okay, so the correct grasp of the Dhamma is to understand it so that you can learn to let go, so you can learn to stop craving, so that you can practice the Eightfold Path. And then comes the famous simile of the raft. People know this one? The... Uh, Bhikkhus, I shall show you how the Dhamma is, similarly, is similar to a raft for crossing over. 
not for the purpose of grasping. Suppose a man in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose further shore was safe and free from fear, but there was no ferry boat or bridge for going to the far shore. Then he thought, this is a great expanse of water. It's dangerous on this side. I need to get to the other side. Suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, and leaves and bind them together into a raft. And supported by that raft and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. And then that man would make himself a raft and using his hands and feet would get safely to the far shore. <clears throat> then he might think, this raft has been very helpful to me. Since it's supported by it and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head and go wherever I want. Now, bhikkhus, what do you think of that? By doing so, would this man be doing what should be done with that raft? No, venerable sir. By doing what would that man be doing? By doing what sh would that man be doing what should be done with that raft? Okay, what should the man do with the raft? When he gets to the far shore, he should let go of it and leave it there. I have shown you how the Dhamma is similar to a raft for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. Because when you know the Dhamma to be similar to a raft, you should abandon even the teachings. How much more should you abandon things contrary to the teachings? Okay, so the Dhamma is to be viewed like a raft to get you to the far shore, but when you get to the far shore, you have to let go of that. Even the Four Noble Truths have to be let go of in the end. They, too, are just a skillful mean. Everything has to be let go of in the end. If you're clinging to anything, it's going to prevent your final awakening. It's like you paddle to the far shore, and then you're laying there on the raft, hanging on to it, as opposed to getting off and stepping onto the bank that's safe. All right? So, part of the view of the Dhamma is to realize all of this is skillful means to help you learn to let go, and that none of it should be clung to. And we're back again to what is, was taught in the Sutta Nipata, by not holding two fixed views, even the fixed views of what's found in the suttas. All of it's got to be let go of. But the sutta goes on. This is quite a long sutta. <clears throat> because there are six standpoints for views. What are the six? Here, because an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, regards material form thus. This is mine. This I am. This is myself. All right, so someone who's not practicing the Dhamma regards this is mine, this I am, this is myself. He regards Vedana, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. Regards perception. Now remember, Vedana is the first categorization of sensory input, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Regards perception, which is the categorization, uh, is the identification. Table, microphone, person, bell, okay? Regards that 
this is me, this is mine, this is myself, regards mental formations. That is thoughts, memories, emotions. This is mine, this is me, this is what I am, this is myself. Or he regards <clears throat> that what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought, and mentally pondered. This is mine, this I am, this is myself. And this standpoint, and so those are five of the standpoints, and then there's the sixth one. Namely, that which is the self is the world. After death I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. I shall endure as long as eternity. This too he regards, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. So basically what the Buddha is saying, there are these things which make us up. Right? There's the body, the Vedana, the perceptions, our mental activities like our thoughts, emotions, and memories. And then there's the things that are seen, heard, sensed, cognized, etc. And we can identify with any of them. But it's a mistake. But when you stop identifying with parts of your body or your mind, don't make the mistake of identifying with the universe. When people first begin to get the teaching of not-self and they see, oh, it's all these things coming together to make me, then they want to identify, well, I'm not just this mind and body. I'm the whole universe. Well, that's really stupid. You're not the whole universe. You have no idea what's going on on the nearest planet to the star Betelgeuse, for example, <laughs> right? In fact, you don't even know what's going on in South Carolina right now, right? Okay, so you're not the universe, and you're not the bits and pieces that make you up. There's a sutta where Vachagota comes to the Buddha. Vachagota was a wanderer of another sect. He's one of my favorite characters. He comes to the Buddha often, and he asks questions. At one point, he comes to the Buddha, and he says, Okay, venerable sir, tell me, once and for all, is there a self? The Buddha doesn't say a word. Okay, venerable sir, tell me once and for all, is there no self? And the Buddha doesn't say a word. Vachagota slaps his forehead and leaves. After he leaves, the Buddha turns to Ananda, his attendant who's sitting nearby, and he says, if I had said there was a self, Vachagota would have made the mistake of falling into eternalism. If I had said there was no self, he would have made the mistake of falling into annihilationism. Better not to say anything at all and not confuse him any worse than he is. Okay, so the Buddha didn't teach self and he didn't teach not self when he got to a deeper level, right? At the beginning level, as I mentioned, there were selves for loving and keeping precepts and there were not selves, okay? But at an even deeper level, it's not one or the other. And so what the Buddha is saying here is don't identify with any aspect of your mind and body as yourself and don't even identify with the universe as yourself. Don't try and find anything to identify with yourself. But he's not saying there's no self because on a conventional level there is. And then he says a well-taught noble disciple who has regard for noble ones, etc. doesn't do that. He doesn't identify with the mind or the body or the universe as self. So part of right view is not identifying with any aspect of 
the mind-body process as me and not identifying with the universe as me. It's not that we identify with the wrong object as self. It's the act of identification itself is wrong. Okay? It's not that you've got to find a better object than your body or your memories. It's there is no object that you can identify with. The whole idea of an entity is missing the deeper teaching. When this was said, a certain bhikkhu asked the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, can there be agitation about what is non-existent externally? And the Buddha says, there can be bhikkhu. Here someone thinks, alas, I had it. Alas, I have it no longer. Alas, may I have it. Alas, I do not get it. Then one sorrows, grieves, laments. One weeps, beating his breast, becomes distraught. This is how there is agitation about what is non-existent externally. So, think about you want to get something, right? And you go to the store and they're sold out and you can't get it, and you're upset. Well, this is actually kind of absurd. You weren't upset before when you didn't have it, right? And you go to the store, and you still don't have it, but now you're upset, right? This is, you're doing this to your mind. There's, no, there's nothing wrong. Or you have something, and you lose it. You weren't upset before you got it, you got it, now you've lost it. You're just in the same boat you were before you got it, and yet now you're upset. We're doing all this stuff to ourselves with our craving and clinging. Venerable Sir, can there be no agitation about what is non-existent externally? And basically the Buddha says, yes. You don't have it, you don't get upset. You have it, you lose it, you don't get upset. Venerable Sir, can there be agitation about what is non-existent internally? There can be. Here someone has the view, that which is the self is the world. After death I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. I shall endure as long as eternity. Or we could say somebody has some view of self. And then that person hears the Dhamma. For the elimination of all standpoints, decisions, obsessions, adherences, and underlying tendencies. For the stilling of all formations, for the relinquishment of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, for cessation, for nibbana. And they misunderstand it and think, oh, I shall be annihilated, I shall perish, I shall be no more. And then sorrows, grieves, laments weeping, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. That is how there is agitation about what is non-existent internally. <clears throat> Think back to when you were a kid, and you thought you had some sort of soul, and you were going to live forever. And then the first time you found out that that might not be true. I don't know. How did that affect you? I grew up as a Presbyterian preacher's kid. You know, I bought the whole thing. And then the first time I thought it might not be true, it scared the bejesus out of me. Right? I was distraught about something non-existent internally. Right? And this is exactly what's being talked about. Can there be no agitation about 
what is non-existent internally. There can be. Someone doesn't have the view, I've got a self. And when they learn, yep, that's not self, that's not self, that's not self, they're not upset. Bhikkhus, you may well acquire that possession that is permanent, everlasting, and eternal, not subject to change, that might endure as long as eternity. But do you see any such possession? No, venerable sir. Good bhikkhus, I also do not see anything that could be possessed that is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, that will last as long as eternity. Bhikkhus, you may well cling to that doctrine of self that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair in one who clings to it. But do you see any doctrine of self like that? No, venerable sir. Good bhikkhus, I too do not see any sort of doctrine like that. Okay, so there's no possession that's going to be forever. There's no doctrine of self that if you cling to it, is going to make you happy forever. You may well take as a support that view that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, grief, pain, and despair. No, doesn't exist. Because there being a self, would there be for me what belongs to a self? Yes, venerable sir. Or there being what belongs to a self, would there be for me a self? Yes, venerable sir. Because since the self and what belongs to a self are not apprehended as true and established, then this standpoint for views, namely, that which is the self is the world after death, I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, endure for as long as eternity, would it not be utterly and completely foolish to take such a view? Yes, Venerable Sir. Bhikkhus, what do you think? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Sir. Is what is impermanent dukkha or sukha? Impermanent, uh, dukkha, Venerable Sir. Is what is dukkha regarded, fit to be regarded, this is me, this is mine, this is what I am? No, venerable sir. And then the same thing for Vedna, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness. All of these are impermanent, subject to change, and hence they're dukkha, and they're not fit to be regarded as self. Now remember, the self that we're looking for is not the conventional self. It's the self that is going to endure and last forever. It's the immortality project. This aspect of me, this essence of me, is going to be here forever, and at some point, it's going to be happy and stay happy forever. That's what we're all after. And the Buddha's pointing out that you just can't find anything like that. It's just not possible. Therefore, bhikkhus, any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. All right, so this is the proper view of materiality. This is not mine, uh, this I am not, this is not myself. And then he repeats the same thing for the Vedana, the perceptions, the mental activities, which means your thoughts, emotions, and memories, and consciousness. Now, we can somewhat easily get that I'm not my body, 
right? We probably <clears throat> don't want to identify with our body because we see it's aging and that eventually it's going to wear out and die, right? So I, want to, I don't want to be my body because that's going to die. Am I my Vedana? Well, they change a lot. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm not my Vedana. Am I my perceptions? Did you ever misperceive something? Well, no, I don't want to identify with my perceptions. Am I my thoughts and emotions? Well, seems like it, but they do change a lot. I mean, if you change your mind, does that mean you become somebody else? Uh, maybe I'm my memories. Uh, how many people in this room know all of the telephone numbers they've ever had their whole life? Oh, yeah. Most people can't remember those. Those numbers were important. You remembered them when they were live, but now they're gone. Does that mean part of you is gone? You probably don't want to identify with your memories, especially as you get older and they start fading away. So that leaves your consciousness, right? And this is the thing most people want to identify with is their consciousness, right? But when you go to sleep and you go into deep dreamless sleep, you're not conscious. Where did your consciousness go? And how does it know to come back to the right person? I mean, what if it was you that was up here teaching yesterday, right? Only you got into some wrong, you know, other person and now I'm the one that's stuck up here teaching, you know? I mean, don't think you want to identify with your consciousness. Basically, the Buddha is saying don't identify with anything. The act of identification itself is a mistake because there's no object that you can identify with. None of it is going to give you permanent, lasting satisfaction. Seeing this, a well-taught noble disciple becomes disenchanted with material form, disenchanted with Vedana, disenchanted with perception, disenchanted with formations, disenchanted with consciousness. Now, disenchantment means disenchanted. We are currently enchanted by forms and memories and perceptions and our consciousness. We're under the spell. We need to break that spell by seeing things as they actually are. By gaining insight into the nature of reality, we break that spell and we become disenchanted. Being disenchanted, we become dispassionate. Now, that word is a translation of the Pali word viraga. Raga means to color something. So when you see graffiti, it's a raga. You might be familiar with the Indian musical form of raga. It's the same word. It's meant to color your mind. Viraga means not colored. Your mind is no longer colored by something. Okay? Think of your favorite toy when you were four years old. You were probably passionate about it. It probably colored your mind. Think of your relationship to that toy now, okay? You've become dispassionate about it. It's no longer coloring your mind. <clears throat> so this is what the Buddha is saying. You see reality as it is. You're no longer identifying with these things. You become disenchanted, and being disenchanted, you become dispassionate in that you're no longer, your mind is no longer colored by misidentification, being dispassionate, one is liberated. When one is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it is liberated. 
One understand birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done, there's no more coming to any state of being. This is the so-called victory cry of the Arhat. <coughs> Anytime someone becomes fully enlightened, then this is what they say. It, uh, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, and I think actually there's nothing higher than this would be a better translation. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. The sutta goes on and on. So what comes next is a description of the arhat. <coughs> I'm going to skip that part. Sorry. I came down sick two weeks ago and still have the remnant of the, co the cough, although I feel just fine. I've got two right here. <laughs> so sometimes the Buddha says, I have been basely vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by other recluses and Brahmins who say, the recluse Gotama is one who leads astray. He teaches the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not, and as I do not proclaim, so I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented. So people are saying the Buddha teaches annihilationism that there is a being here, and Nibbana, the going out of the fire, is the going out of existence of the existent being. And the Buddha's just said, <coughs> there's nothing that actually is an existing being, and so they, they're misrepresenting him when they accuse him of annihilationism. Bhikkhus, both formally and now, what I teach is dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. If others abuse, revile, scold, and harass the Tathagata for that, the Tathagata on that account feels no annoyance, bitterness, or dejection of heart. And if others honor, respect, Revere and venerate the Tathagata for that. The Tathagata on that account feels no delight, joy, or elation of heart. If others honor, revere, respect, and venerate the Tathagata for that, the Tathagata on that account thinks they perform such services as these for me in regard to this which earlier was fully understood. So if somebody accuses the Buddha of being an annihilationist, it doesn't upset him. If somebody praises him, for what he does teach, he doesn't get all elated, but he thinks, well, it's good that they learn. Mm -hmm. And then the Buddha says, you should do the same. If others revile you, don't get upset. If they praise you, don't let it go to your head. Therefore, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, it will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And what is not yours? Material form. Vedna, perceptions, mental activities, consciousness. <clears throat> Bhikkhus, what do you think? 
If people carried off the grass, sticks, branches, and leaves in this jata grove, or burned them, or did what they liked with them, would you think, people are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing what they like with us? No, venerable sir, because it is, that is neither ourself nor what belongs to itself. So too, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it, for when you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. What is not yours? Material form, Vedna perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness. So the Buddha is saying, if you don't identify with any of this stuff, if something happens to it, it doesn't, it doesn't upset you. Just like if you're sitting here and somebody comes in and takes one of the pillows, I mean, you might be upset for New York Insight because you identify a bit with New York Insight, but you're not going to think somebody's stolen part of you, right? So this is what the Buddha is aiming at. And then the Buddha says that this Dhamma is well proclaimed by me, clear, open, evident, and free of patchwork. Okay, it's, it's laid out. All you've got to do is pay attention to it. Um, it goes on talking about this. Let's skip it. Because this Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus is clear, open, evident, free of patchwork. In the Dhamma well proclaimed by me thus, which is clear, open, and free of patchwork, those who have sufficient faith in me, sufficient love for me, are all headed for heaven. Okay, so it describes the various possibilities. And those who have enough understanding become enlightened. And those who have enough faith are headed for heaven, whatever that means. That is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's word. So it's a very interesting sutta. There's a lot of material. There's the wrong view of Aritha. There's the very important teachings about not identifying with the five aggregates not identifying with the universe, about the raft, the, the teachings are not to be clung to. They're skillful means to get you to the other shore, and when you get there, you let go of them. It's, it's a sutta worth reading. Somebody asked me for my top ten suttas. I put this one on the list. Even though it's a later sutta, it brings together a lot of information. Experiences happen. Experiences happen. But it's even more complicated than that because we are forced in some instances to make experiences happen and, 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 and to choose one experience over another experience. And so right. who is doing all of this? Ah, you were perfectly fine up until you asked the who question. <laughs> who questions from a relative viewpoint, are me, okay? I'm the one who agreed to come to New York and teach this weekend, right? You're the ones who got up this morning and took the subway or wherever, how you got here, okay? I mean, this is pretty obvious. But this is from the relative viewpoint. From the absolute viewpoint, all questions about who 
are the same as the question, which way does the fire go when it goes out? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Right. The, the, the question, which way does the fire go when it goes out? I mean, we say the fire goes out. Well, does it go north, south, east, west, up, down? Well, the question doesn't make any sense, right? right? On the absolute level, there are no who's. Okay? On the relative level, there's me and there's you. On the absolute level, stuff is just happening. This is what this, I about the skillful right. balancing of those two mm-hmm. you, you get that to that place just like you get to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> Practice. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is a matter of practice. And the practice is off the cushion with right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's on the cushion with the meditation practice, the insight practices. It's off the cushion with right effort and on the cushion with right effort. That's knowing if you've got an unwholesome state of mind and making it go away or you've got a wholesome state and keeping it going. It's both on and off the cushion with mindfulness. It's on the cushion with concentration, right? Although it helps to be concentrated at other times as well. And it's both on and off the cushion with right view and both on and off the cushion with right intentions. Okay? It really is just trying to lead your life from the basis of the Eightfold Path. Keeping the precepts, paying attention to what's going on, acting from a place of letting go love and compassion because that's right intention and keeping the view of dependent origination and the Four Noble Truths. I mean, the Four Noble Truths are really a summary of part of dependent origination, right? So keeping that in mind and holding it all lightly. Don't lock in on the views. That's what has to be practiced. And as the Dalai Lama said, you should probably measure your progress in five-year increments. Okay, so you go on a 10-day retreat, and you come home, and it feels pretty good, and then you're like, well, but it didn't change me all that much from the way I was 10 days ago, right? But five years later, when you look back, you realize, well, I'm not making some of the stupid mistakes I used to make. But yeah, this is a long-term project. But hey, you know, it gives you something to do. That's the ultimate question, right? And again, I mean, the craving part is really, I, I understand desire, but desire after death, I mean, it's... Yeah, okay. So, <clears throat> we'll probably have to answer this and go to lunch, but I'm going to give you my take on rebirth. Okay. Now, the first thing I should admit is that I'm quite proud not to be orthodox anything in any fashion Anywhere. Okay. So, 
all of us have been reborn with every intentional action we have ever done. Okay? There's not really any entity here in the first place. <clears throat> all there is, remember, are streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. And when those streams interact, it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. The streams of dependently originated phenomena that made this mind-body process <clears throat> also made this mind-body process so that it is generating streams as well, streams of actions. And those actions are going out and changing how the world is manifesting. Now, I don't get to change the world a lot. I only get to change it a tiny bit. And all of you get to change it, well, about the same amount, a tiny bit. Okay, But every action you do makes the world either a slightly better place or a slightly worse place. It, it never stays the same. Okay, The world is different with each action that you make. And it gets to be a little bit better or a little bit worse. In a sense, you and the world, don't identify with either one of them, have been reborn with every action that you make. So... Your rebirth is happened with every one of your actions. And even after the physical body dies, the results of those actions continue on. There's the friends that you had and the influence you had on them. If you have any children, then you know your genetics is passing on and certainly the interaction with all those kids, the people you worked with, whatever you created at your work, um, just if you were nice to somebody on the street, all of these things are having actions and all of this is unfolding. If you don't identify with any of it, your rebirth is taking place every time you do anything intentional. So what gets reborn? Just your actions. Just the consequences of your actions is what gets reborn. And, yeah, the mind-body process keeps getting reborn over and over again for hopefully quite a number of decades, and then that stops. But the impact of the actions done while the mind-body process was acting continues. Maybe it dampens out at some point, maybe not. The ultimate disidentification. I think that's what the Buddha was talking about. Yeah, which and also points to the importance of acting in a way that makes the world a slightly better place. If you make the world a slightly worse place, you are being reborn <coughs> in a slightly worse place. <clears throat> but just don't identify with any of it. That's the key. That's a relative aspect of it. Yeah, we very definitely want what might be called eternal justice. If somebody does something bad, like your least favorite politician. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking of Dick Cheney, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. We, right, but look at what they've done, the actions that they've done, and all of the pain that those misguided actions has produced. All the people that lost their houses because those people acted in that way. Yeah. Don't identify with anything. 
All right? And it's produced a lot of negative downstream karmic resultants with this negative action that was happening. Right. That's dropping it back to the relative level. There's a them and there's a me and the separation and everything else. And on the relative level, So, there's a couple more suttas I want to talk about with right view. And the first one is the one that was mentioned before lunch. The Greater Discourse on the Destruction of Craving. Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was living at Savati in Jetas Grove on Atapindikas Park. At that time, there was a bhikkhu by the name of Sati, the son of a fisherman, who held a pernicious view that this consciousness transmigrates from incarnation to incarnation. And the monks heard that Sati had this view, and they went to him and said, do not hold such a view, the Blessed One does not teach that. But although they questioned and cross-questioned him, Sati stubbornly held to his pernicious view. And when the monks were unable to change his mind, they went to see the Blessed One, saluted him, sat down at one side, and said, Venerable Sir, and explained the whole conversation to him. And the Buddha turned to a monk and said, You, tell Sati the Master calls. (laughs) And so once again, that monk went and found Sati and told him, The Master calls. And Sati went to where the Blessed One was, saluted, sat down at one side, And he was sitting there. The Blessed One then asked him, Sati, is it true that the following view has arisen in you? As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, it is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. Exactly so, Venerable Sir. As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, it is this consciousness which runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. What is consciousness, Sati? Venerable Sir, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions. Well now, if you were to ask most Buddhists what consciousness is, you probably would get a similar answer. But the Buddha replies, Misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man, have I not stated in many ways consciousness to be dependently arisen? Since without a condition, there is no origination of consciousness. But you, misguided man, have misrepresented us by your wrong grasp and injured yourself and stored up much demerit. Well, this will lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. Sound familiar? Pretty much identical words being used as was used with or Aritha, the son of the vulture killers. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, what do you think? Has this bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, sparked even, has kindled even a spark of wisdom in this dhamma and discipline? No, venerable sir. How could he, venerable sir? When this was said, the bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping, head down, glum, and without response. Then knowing this, the Blessed One told him, Misguided man, you will be recognized by your own pernicious view. Well, 
Here we are, two and a half thousand years later, recognizing poor Sati by his own pernicious view. I shall question the monks on this matter. And he says, monks, do you understand the way Sati understands? No, venerable sir, for many times you have taught consciousness to be dependently originated. <clears throat> good bhikkhus, it is good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me thus. For in many ways I have shown consciousness to be dependently originated. Okay, so Sati thinks there's something, his consciousness, that speaks and acts. So it's, it's the little guy sitting behind the eyeballs pulling the levers, right? And furthermore, it experiences here and there, or this life and the next life, the results of good and bad actions. So there's a little guy behind the eyeballs and when you die, the little guy behind the eyeballs gets transported into the next incarnation and sits behind somebody else's eyeballs and pulls the levers and experiences any unresolved karmic resultants at that time. And this is pretty much Orthodox Buddhism today. But the Buddha says, no, I've taught you that consciousness is dependently originated. He says, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises. If it arises dependent on eye and sights, it's eye consciousness. If it arises dependent on ear and sounds, ear consciousness. Nose and smells, nose consciousness. Taste, tongue and taste, tongue consciousness. Body and textures, body consciousness. Mind and mind objects, mind consciousness. All right, so we have a consciousness for each of the senses. <clears throat> there is no way that you can, say, look at a record, remember records, and hear the music. Right? You, you needed something to vibrate it and turn it into sound, and then you could hear it. Okay? And there's, for most people, no way they can listen to a piece of music and see anything. Now, there are people with synesthesia where there is some cross there. Okay, but in general, you taste your food with your tongue. You know, you have some nice strawberries there and you can't put your fingers on it anyway and get the experience of what the strawberries taste like. You just can't do it. And looking at it doesn't do it. And listening to the strawberries doesn't do it. You've got to actually hit the tongue with it. So, the Buddha is saying that the consciousness that arises is dependent on the... the object. Now consciousness is very interesting. See the thing sticking out of the top of the Buddha's head? Can everybody see that? Okay, fix your attention right on it. Don't let your attention waver for an instant. Be right there. Now become aware of what's in your peripheral vision. What's in your peripheral vision was there all along. But when I said, fix your attention on the thing on the top of the Buddha's head, you weren't conscious of what was there. Right? The sight objects were there. Your eye was there. The light was striking your eye. But the mental consciousness of those objects wasn't there because you were so consciously fixated on a different ob object. This is what consciousness is. It's... That which knows would be a better definition than Sati's definition of the little guy behind the eyeballs that gets to go on. 
right? So that, it's that mental aspect that knows whether it knows taste or sights or anything else. The Buddha goes on to say, <clears throat> just as a fire is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it burns, that is, when a fire is dependent on logs, it is a log fire. When it's on faggots, it's a faggot fire. When it's grass, it's a grass fire. When it burns dependent on cow dung, it's a cow dung fire. When it burns dependent on chaff, it's a chaff fire. We say the same thing, forest fire, house fire, etc. <clears throat> In the same way, consciousness is reckoned by the sense that it's dependent upon. So it's dependently originated. And then what follows in this sutta is one of the most tedious passages in all of the suttas. The Buddha questions the monks about dependent origination. It appears that this sutta is actually composed of three major parts. And what we've gotten up to this point appears to be the original sutta and probably is the origination of the Buddha sending someone to bring back the guy with the pernicious view and saying, misguided man, you'll be known for a long time by your pernicious view, which appears actually in three suttas. Okay, <clears throat> so this appears to be the original up to this point. Then it appears that probably during the Abhidhamma period, this whole questionnaire, this catechism as it's referred to, on dependent origination appears. And it's got dependent origination going in forward order and reverse order and arising and ceasing in both forward and reverse and recapitulations and repeats and it just goes on and it's got nutriment thrown in and it it just goes and recapitulates and goes and uh, finally that section ends and then we have something back probably from the original sutta that got stepped on that the, the, whatever was in there originally got stepped on by the, all these question and answers. So original sutta, additional question and answers that stepped on what was originally there, and then this conclusion. Bhikkhus, knowing and seeing in this way, that is, knowing and seeing in terms of dependent origination, would you run back to the past thus? Were we in the past? Were we not in the past? What were we in the past? How were we in the past? Having been what, what did we become in the past? No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, would you run forward to the future? Shall we be in the future? Shall we not be in the future? What shall we be in the future? How shall we be in the future? Having been what, what shall we become in the future? No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, would you now be inwardly perplexed about the present? Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being from? Where will it go? No, venerable sir. Then the Buddha asks, would you say this out of respect because I'm your teacher? No, venerable sir. Would you say this because you understand dependent origination? Yes, venerable sir. Good monks, it's good that you understand in this way. So, the Buddha's deepest answer to the question or deep, deepest response to the incorrect view of 
my consciousness goes from incarnation to incarnation is to talk about dependent origination. Don't look at entities. I'm an entity, right? You're an entity. The glass is an entity. The microphone's an entity. The Buddha's saying don't get caught up in entities. See everything as streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. That's all there is. It's not that there is a self. It's not that there's not a self. What there is is dependently originated phenomena rolling on. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither forever fused with them nor separated from them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who, com who care for the world. So this is basically what the Buddha is saying in his deepest teachings on rebirth or reincarnation. He's saying don't think that there's some entity in there. He's saying that don't even ask that question. Look at the world in terms of dependently originated phenomena. Now, the sutta goes on from here. <clears throat> There's a sort of a little bridge which appears to be quite late since it contradicts the early part about the Buddha saying there's no entity that goes on. And then we have a completely different sutta which is about uh, craving for sense pleasures and the ending of that. And the ending of the sense pleasures involves the gradual training that I talked about yesterday, keeping the precepts, guarding the senses, being mindful, being content with little, abandoning the hindrances, practicing the jhanas. If you're good enough at the jhanas, it says, you won't be caught up in the usual pursuit of sense pleasures. And then the sutta ends. The sutta is the greater discourse on the destruction of craving. The second part, it's pretty obvious what the craving is, it's the craving for sense pleasures. Kama chanda, or kama tanha. This first part with the bhikkhu sati is bhava tanha, craving for becoming. Sati wants to become in his next life. And so in order to have his immortality project work, he postulates that his consciousness is what goes on. And the Buddha is saying, no, the destruction of that craving comes about when you clearly see there's nothing but dependently originated phenomena rolling on. And then in a completely separate sutta, he says the destruction of the kama tanha, the craving for sense pleasures, comes about when you're skilled enough with the jhanas that you go there for your sense pleasures instead of well, he doesn't say watching TV, but the equivalent from 2,500 years ago. So, questions, comments? Me and I have all these problems and I have bills and 
If without becoming a monastic, you've got far more stuff to deal with on the relative level. <laughs> yeah, if you become a monastic, it simplifies the relative level. You don't have a job, right? I mean, your job basically is to share the Dharma with other people. Right? So you do, in a sense, have a job. And probably you're going to have to do some manual labor at either fixing the food or repairing the monastery or whatever. So but it's simplified. But you don't have any bills, and you don't have any money, and you don't go anywhere unless somebody takes you someplace. So the Buddha was asked, is the monastic way the only way to become totally liberated? And he said, no, but it's sure the easy way, because it simplifies all the stuff. The choice is, do you want to become a monastic, or do you want to continue as a layperson. If you continue with a layperson, you have to deal with all the things that a layperson has to deal with in this culture. You, you have to take care of the relative reality. There's no escaping that. You attempt to escape that and the bill collectors come and take away your TV and your stove and everything else. Right? <clears throat> but you can't just live at that level. You've got to understand the other level as well. And the deeper your understanding of the absolute truth, the fact that there's nobody home, the less likely you are to get caught up in the craving and clinging. And if you're not doing the craving and clinging, then you're less likely to make the purchases that result in the bills. Okay? Because you find that the things you can purchase don't provide the lasting happiness you were hoping for. And you begin to find that there are other ways to provide for your happiness and security instead of doing what they tell you on TV, which is buy this, buy this, buy this, and buy this. But, yeah. Yeah. It takes, it takes somewhat of a strong personality, which seems contradictory when we're talking about not-self, but it takes somewhat of a strong personality to interact with those people who are caught up in the craving and clinging that Western culture promotes and not also be caught up in it. It's, it's tricky. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the greatest ally you have is mindfulness. Okay, one of the, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of phenomena. And one of the teachings under that is mindfulness of the six senses, the objects of those senses, and whatever fetter arises dependent on them. So you hear something, how does that cause you to get caught? If you're mindful, you see, oh, I'm getting caught because I heard that. Or you see something and I'm getting caught because... I saw that, or taste, or smell, or touch. So it comes down to choice. Right. Not right. It is possible to live in Western culture and not be so caught up in it. 
I say not be so caught up in it. I didn't say not be caught in it. It's really difficult not to be caught in it. I mean, I have my Kindle, right? I've got a computer in the bag there. You know, it, it's... There, there are certain toys that if you're going to live in this culture, you've got to have. So you just have to realize they're not going to give you lasting happiness and they may exhibit their sandcastleness and disappear at some point. <laughs> yeah. Right, and there are people that live on various levels of this. People who renounce some things, uh, people who renounce quite a lot of things. Um, and then there are the really exceptional people like Deepama who are able to you know, live as a layperson the whole time, but live at a very refined level as a layperson. Yeah. And as lay people, that's what we should be striving for. I said yesterday that you should use Nibbana or enlightenment more like the North Star than a destination. Something to guide you, to orient you in your behavior because you want to aim for that. And if you do, whether you get there or not, your life becomes easier. You don't do as much craving and clinging and therefore you have less dukkha. It's as simple as that. Sometimes people ask me, okay, you've done a lot of practice. What's the, the biggest effect that you've seen from the practice? And what I can say is, so far, when things go wrong, I don't react as strongly as I used to. I'm better able to deal with things when they go wrong. And the second thing would be probably that I don't need as much stuff to go right. I'm actually satisfied much easier when things do go right than I used to be. You were an IT worker. Yes. You must have experience in the real world where sometimes your superiors consider lying almost part of the job yeah. This we're going to be done on this day. You know it's impossible. Right. You tell your boss that's impossible. Don't say it. Tell him that. How did I? How did you deal with that? Yeah. Well, the way I dealt with it, they would ask me for an estimate, and I would figure out the best estimate I could, and then I would multiply it by ten. And tell them, and they would laugh at me and say, no, it'll be done sooner than that. And I would say, you asked me for an estimate. I gave you an estimate. Don't complain that you don't like the estimate. And they would never believe my estimates, and they would make their own stuff. And then when it was done, it was done. And if it was done by the time, you know, they were happy. And if it wasn't done by the time, and they complained to me, I said, look, I gave you my estimate. I'm still well within my estimate. <laughs> In other words, I just didn't take them too seriously. <clears throat> but yeah. If you've got a job out there, you're sometimes requested to do stuff that just, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I was lucky. I am skilled enough at computer programming that I could get away with a lot. You know, I, could, I generally got my projects in well ahead of time, partially because I gave ridiculous estimates, but partially because I was really good.
And there was one time, I worked for the company that did Dial-A-Joke, Dial-A-Soap Opera Update, Dial-A-Horoscope, you know, Dial-A-Romance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, was, this was back in, in the 80s. Okay, long time ago. And so we had computers that, you know, you called in and the computer talked to you. But the computer could also call out. And my boss comes to me and says, I want you to write a program that will call all the numbers in San Francisco and play an advertisement to whoever answers the phone. All right, this is before, this is, this is early. Origins of spam. <laughs> yeah. And I refused to do it. I said, nope, I won't do that. And uh, he was a little upset, but since, since he was dependent on me for all of the IT for the company, he couldn't exactly fire me because they were going to be screwed. So he hired someone else to do it. And the someone else wrote the program. And as soon as it was finished, the California Public Utilities Commission ruled that that was illegal, and he couldn't do it. So he'd wasted all his money hiring somebody to do something that was illegal. Of course, eventually, somebody got to the PUC and convinced them that it was legal, and we get all the phone calls. But yeah, sometimes you've just got to say, no, I won't do that, and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, if he'd fired me, you know, I'd have gotten another job or gone traveling or something. But I wasn't the least bit worried about being fired because I knew I was in a, a position where they needed me. So. Yeah. 
Right, the examining is not the problem. The examining is really good. It's the judgment, okay? <clears throat> the idea is you learn whatever the lesson is in what's available, all right? If things go wrong, you learn, okay, why did they go wrong so I don't make that mistake in the future? If things go right, you learn, okay, this actually works so I can do this in the future. When you're examining like that, and you see something that you don't like, don't judge yourself. The world will do that, okay? Just say, okay, how could I change this? And it may be that it's like, well, actually, I don't want to change this. All right, so you just leave it like that. That's the way it is. But it's really the reaction, the judging, that's the problem. And it's the best thing I can find for working with judging is one, an acceptance of myself, who I am. Now this is all on the relative level, right? Me, myself, yeah, right, exactly. But also that, okay, what can I learn from this, all right? So I was in Barcelona. If you haven't been to Barcelona, go, it's really great. But watch out for the pickpockets and the scam artists. And two scam artists came up to me, and they sucked me in. I, I bought into it for probably 90 seconds before I caught on and just walked away, right? But I was so mad at myself. You know, it was just like, oh, I swallowed it. I was, eh, eh. And this was right before going on retreat at the Forest Refuge, right? So the scam artists got me, like, I think it was, like, the 1st of November, and then I go into retreat in the middle of November, so I'm there, I'm meditating. It's like, oh, those guys. I mean, I didn't lose any money. It was kind of interesting to interact with them, right? It was, it, yeah, it was a lesson in that I actually have to be paying more attention to what's going on. I can't just quite be strolling around being happy and you know, nice to everyone. I, I really do need to pay a little bit more attention, okay? And yet I'm on myself, and it took weeks to turn it off, you know, because I was just there, and it was like I'd made this mistake, and I, I shouldn't have made that mistake. I should have... I, I, the only problem was what I was doing to myself and interrupting my meditation. So... When you're judging yourself, it's really important to notice, oh, I'm judging myself. And then let go of the judging and see, is there a lesson I can learn here? If there's a lesson, learn the lesson. If there's not a lesson, let it go. I'm more examining myself than I used to, but I don't think quite to the level that you're describing Okay, uh, I'd say it happens fairly regularly, but not obsessively. Emptiness is, is the womb of compassion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
Emptiness is the womb of compassion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, as a practical way of working with dependent origination, is notice the things upon which you depend. Okay? I don't know what you ate for lunch, but you didn't grow it, probably. Right? So, you're dependent upon the grocer you bought it from. You're dependent upon the farmer that grew it. In California, I'm dependent upon the illegal aliens who came in and picked it, right? So there's a lot of people involved with every bite that I eat. So just start noticing the dependent relationships. When you're in Central Park, notice all those trees that are exhaling oxygen for you to inhale. And so just as a a general sense of dependent origination. Notice how one thing depends on another, right? We were dependent on somebody coming, opening the door this morning. We were dependent upon the electricity. I mean, the list goes on. So anytime you find yourself in a situation where you've got a chance to analyze what's going on with it, just start looking to see, all right? Whether it's you or something else, you know, external to you. I mean... You're standing there waiting for the light to change, and you notice a taxi going by, right? Transportation in New York City is dependent upon shared transportation, right? There's too many people here for everybody to have their own car running around, okay? So that taxi sort of triggers, not that you currently are dependent, you're, you're out walking, you're actually doing the individual transportation. But the overall transportation here, because there's so many taxis and buses and subways and everything else, you start seeing, oh, yeah, it's dependent upon being shared. And so you're just looking for examples of that all the time, noticing that one thing arises dependent on other things. You don't have to identify all of the things that it's dependent upon, but just notice that nothing is standing by itself. Okay? <clears throat> That's one of the ways to, to notice it. Now, you mentioned Nargajuna. In chapter 24 of his fundamental verses on the middle way, he makes what most people consider the heart of his argument. He says that everything is dependently originated, everything is empty. And he equates emptiness and dependent origination. Okay, so the fact that this is a glass, it's conventional, and that actually it's dependent upon silicon and heat and, you know, I don't remember all the things that go into making glass, right? And the table here is dependent upon trees, which are dependent upon water and minerals in the earth and sunshine and dependent upon somebody chopping down the trees and somebody milling the wood and somebody making a tree, I mean making a table. All of this stuff we see coming together, so there's no inherent tableness in the table, no inherent glassness in the glass. Right? As I said, this is a bus shelter if you're a leprechaun. Okay, So 
the lack of inherent existence in things, the lack of tableness in this, the lack of leanness in this is the same as emptiness. And that emptiness is seen as that everything is dependent on other things. Okay? Once you clearly see it's not just this is dependent on a bunch of stuff over there and that's dependent on a bunch of stuff over here, but it's all interacting. The things that make the table, made the bowl, made me, made the hurricane, okay? All of this stuff is interacting and realizing the interrelated nature of all of these interacting things, one begins to realize one is not separate from all of these things and therefore one should act with compassion towards all of these sentient things. So that's where the compassion comes from. It's recognizing the empty nature that is the dependently arisen, originated nature and the interactions of all the phenomena that eventually come to make the individual objects. And through those interactions, realizing that nothing is actually separate. And then with the lack of separation, compassion. I mean, if this hand is caught, this hand doesn't go, oh, you stupid hand, right? It's immediately there to get it free. Well, we're all part, we're all hands on the same limb of humanity. But can I add to that in the sense that uh, subatomic particles always nature of all molecular structures are empty. Right. So there's no substance that's called to reality. And the fact that something feels solid is because we cannot perceive the speed of this interaction with atomic particles at the table is actually not, it's not solid. So we experience that in the genres, that there's no solidity here. Yeah. So in a way, I think, you know, going back to the I guess some people missed that yesterday, but it's kind of experiencing the emptiness and the, the non-solidity of it all. It's through actually through Right. The, the key thing, though, the way that the word shunyata is used by Nagarjuna is to see that it, things don't have, they're empty of inherent existence because they're all dependently originated. You and everything else not the same as conditions on which you depend. You're not the same as, or you're not fused with or separated from them. <coughs> Well gone is a, one of the translations of Tathagata. Okay, Tathagata literally probably is thus gone. But actually, if you look at the real origin of the word, thus is like a synonym for truth. And gone, the gata part, can also mean arrived at. So a Tathagata is one who has arrived at the truth. Yeah, it does. I only discovered that by playing with the dictionary. Yeah. 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 Right. 
the word Tathagata seems to have been in common usage before the Buddha. He referred to himself as a Tathagata, but remember, there's no a, an, or the in Pali. So he didn't say, I am the Tathagata. He didn't say, I am a Tathagata. He said, I am Tathagata. I have arrived at the truth, basically. Okay? It's just a a function of the syntax of English that we find it always presented as the Tathagata. Right. Yeah. If you're going to read the English translations and really begin to get a sense of what the Pali is like, you need to throw out the A and the. So I actually, when I read suttas and I see the Tathagata, I generally tend to read it as a Tathagata because it doesn't sound right to throw out. But if I read it as one who has arrived at the truth, I don't need the A or the an. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not only do you need to know the, to whom the Buddha was speaking and what that context is, you really need to know the Pali. <laughs> and if you don't know the Pali, you need to know at least a little bit about the Pali to, to get an understanding. There's a lot of words that are habitually mistranslated. Uh, Vedana. What? Uh, the Bhagava is would be the blessed one, and that's a more common, excuse me, a more common term for the Buddha. In the suttas, they didn't use it for anyone else, but it's a widely used term in India, in other traditions. So Bhagavan, Shirajanish, remember him? Yeah, same word. Okay, so. Yeah, there, actually on my website, I have a page of problematic Pali translations, okay? I mean, Bhikkhu Bodhi does a great job, but there's some of the words, you know, it's just like, eh. Like, what, Vedna, which is usually translated as feeling, but people think it means emotion, and if you go to Spirit Rock, yeah, well, it's California, you know. It's my first name, L-E-I-G-H, my last initial, B, dot com, Lee B, dot com. Um, Can we go on with this for a little bit more? Now I'm really confused. (laughs) Okay, Vedna means the... This is V-E-G-N-A? No, V-E-D-A-N-A, Vedana. It's usually translated as feeling, but it means the initial categorization of a sensory input. If I strike the bell... Pleasant, right? If we get out the blackboard and I scrape my fingernails down it, unpleasant, right? Okay? Your lunch, I hope, tasted pleasant. The sounds of the street noise while you're walking down it is unpleasant. Yeah, uh, right. But remember, it's just the first reaction. First, right there. Yeah. But your thoughts have a Vedana as well, okay? So like if, I'm going to say some words and see if you can get the Vedana of my voice, which would be the tone and what it sounds like, and the Vedana of the picture that arises in your mind, okay? So green grass, tall trees, 
big bushes. President bushes. Something different about the Vedana. Okay, that's mental Vedana. Even though I said the word bushes is exactly the same. Okay, you, you had a mental reaction to the word as well. So that's another word. I think that should just leave it untranslated. Same thing with dukkha. Don't translate it as suffering. Just leave it as dukkha. Uh, what more does happen? To some extent, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, the word that I used, uh, I talked about disenchantment this morning. Sometimes you see it as revulsion. Not revulsion, it's disenchantment. Okay, so yeah, it helps. And like I said, I have on, on my website this web page of words that I found that, yeah, kind of need to be cleaned up. And so sometimes when I'm reading stuff, I'm busy retranslating back into Pali or retranslating the English translation into a different English translation to, to get a sense of what's there. So. Oh, yeah, I, I change it all the time. I mean, I was a computer programmer. Yeah, well, well, it's, it's just like any website, except I know how to program it. Yeah. So I change the, the pages, and they look good on my computer, and then I throw them up onto the Internet. So... And of course, the program I used to change him is a program I wrote myself. Right. So. Let's say if I do an hour hour practice. Mm -hmm. So I already kind of started mental generating. So how long kind of, how do you, what's structuring that? About 50 50 concentration insight. So 50% concentration, which would include the metta at the beginning. And 50% insight. Yeah, about. But don't look at your watch. Just sort of estimate. Yeah. Yeah, right. But is actually kind of turned off by that. Yeah, it, it. I would say it's you know it's conditioning. You know the conditions on, under which they grew up. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people aren't interested in the truth. What they're interested in is security. Right? And they found something that gives them a sense of security and they don't want to mess with it. Right? So they've got their belief system and don't mess with my belief system. Of course, one of my friends pointed out you can't have a belief system without BS. So, uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just the way it is. You know, people are different. 
I look at my sister, who's quite different from me. I mean, she still lives in Mississippi. You know, I got out of the South by the time I was 25. <laughs> so, you know, same environment, same, you know, pretty close to same genetics and so forth. But yeah, we're very different. So. Yeah. Yeah. Someone asked him, "Would everyone eventually become enlightened?" And he said, "Well, I'm not going to answer that question. But anyone who does become enlightened will become enlightened by penetrating the four noble truths." Yeah. So it's not. He, he couldn't say how many, but he could say this is the way. And if you're interested. Here's here's the path. No. People seem to have one of three ways as primarily relating to the world, either visually, auditorily, or kinesthetically. Right? So visually, that would be your artist, your sculptor, okay, something like that. Auditory, musicians, right? <clears throat> um, people who write, okay, uh, uh, someone who writes a book, they're using their auditory part to write the book, they're the word part of the brain. And then kinesthetics, a dancer, an athlete, something like that. Most people have one that's primary, and one that's secondary, and one that's underdeveloped. Like I'm primarily visual, but I do okay with words, right? So I got a fairly good auditory part, but my kinesthetic is highly undeveloped. I didn't enter my body till I was 27 years old. You know, I just used to carry my head around. So it's not as well developed. But professional athletes, well, Yogi Berra is a perfect example. He was a catcher, all right? Catchers need to be able to see the whole field, so his visual was really good. He was quite good at batting, right? He was, his visual was great, but being a catcher, that's an incredibly demanding kinesthetic activity. So his kinesthetic was really good, but his auditory, okay? <laughs> It doesn't really matter which it is in relation to jhana practice. It doesn't, as far as I can tell, there's no advantage to any of those. If you're visual, you tend to see the jhanas. If you're kinesthetic, you tend to sense them almost tactily. You can feel when you're in them. If you're auditory, you probably tend to go to whatever your second is. If you're auditory and your second one is visual, you see them. If you're auditory and your second one is kinesthetic, you feel it. Because you don't really hear the jhanas. Okay? But it doesn't matter. It's the, the access method sometimes can be better if you pick one that's more for your uh, primary thing. Mindfulness of breathing is a tactile sensation. 
So people that are primarily tactile have an easier time with mindfulness of breathing than someone who is primarily visual, secondary, auditory, and tactile is their weakest one, right? The <clears throat> working with the visualizations that the Tibetans use, that's oriented towards somebody who's visual, right? That will also get you quite concentrated, right? The words when you're doing metta practice, that's for someone who's auditory. The way Ayakema would do metta practice was as visualizations for someone who is visual. Right? So sometimes it can make a difference for the access method. But the entry into the jhana pretty much is going to be the same. Once you're well concentrated, find some pamoja, some pleasant sensation to focus on and then let your mind take over from there. And that doesn't really matter whether it's visual, kinesthetic, or auditory. Does that help? Yeah, that would be somebody visual, yeah. Yeah, and it may be that as you learn the jhana and you see your way into it, but you can't describe it, right? You, you see how you do it, but if you try and describe it to somebody, you don't know the words for what you're doing, but you see what to do, yeah. Or, if you're kinesthetic, you feel what to do. You can't see it, you can't describe it, but you feel how it is. You, when it feels like this, you put your attention here, and when it feels like that, you put your attention there, and then it happens. Yeah. Um, it took me a long time to understand this idea of joy, you know, because it sounds like it's awakening, and I have to consider, but then I often Buddha talks about this thing of bliss, joy, rapture. And I know that when I started doing the jhanas, I knew I had access to Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about it? Because I guess we grew up in such a Judeo Judeo Christian culture of this kind of working hard and you know mm-hmm. yeah. painful and then all of a sudden when it comes this no, this is uh, yeah. a place that comes from harmlessness, doesn't harm anyone. It doesn't come from flesh or any sensual uh, sensual desire, but it's very like that was part of his awakening. Like, right. You just, I mean, to me that was such a um, huge jump in my practice once I got the jhana, and the relief it gave me to not have to look for a central culture outside of yeah. there, but I could create it myself within the right. Practice. The Buddha frequently talks about joy being part of the practice. You really need that on the spiritual path. You need, you need to feel good about yourself and about what you're doing. That otherwise, it's too big of a grind. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. And that's where the jhanas come in. They're a great source of this joy that you're needed. I mean, basically, the movement through the jhanas is get a lot of rapture going, a lot of glee, calm it down to joy, calm it down further to contentment, Calm it down further to equanimity. Now when you're that equanimous, go examine reality. Your mind has been buffered by the joy and quieted all the way down to equanimity. Now when you go see things, you have a much better chance of seeing it. So yeah, joy is an essential ingredient on the path. I mean, 
coming from Zen, I never did any of this stuff. Yeah. So now coming more into Parabetrics and doing the mental kind of also changed completely my life. Yeah. And about the way I treat myself. She was talking about examining, and I think we did not talk about examining, but keeping in mind what your task is not about judgment, yeah. about being kind of compassionate, loving to oneself. Right. Metta is definitely another source of joy. In fact, when you think about it, there's not a lot of difference between the feeling of love and the feeling of joy. The feeling of love is wishing that joy to someone else or to yourself, but the actual feeling is pretty much the same. So metta is, yeah, another way uh, that, that you can produce that joy. Buddha didn't talk about it <clears throat> so much as a necessity the way that he did about PT and concentration and so forth. But it certainly occurs in a large number of places and um, it seems to be an important part of the path, definitely. Yeah, right. And basically these are the mind states you want to cultivate and he talks about that quite frequently. <clears throat>